Ladies and gents, welcome to another episode of Optimize Your Body Podcast. Got an incredible guest here today. Goes by the name of Stan Effordin. Uh, he's an IFBB professional bodybuilder and world record holding powerlifter. And he's one of only 10 men in the world to ever total over 2,300 pounds raw in competition. Stan holds the title as the world's strongest bodybuilder. Uh, he studied exercise science at the University of Oregon and has been uh, training high school, uh, college, and professional athletes for over 25 years. And Stan also conducts seminars all over the country for various sports and nutrition training techniques. Um, and he's also appeared in many magazines and writes for Muscular Development, Flex Magazine, and Power Magazine. And uh, he's also, just on top of that, a successful entrepreneur, having built three different startup businesses into multi-million dollar companies. Welcome to the show, Stan. Thanks for having me, brother. Appreciate it. It's an absolute pleasure to have you on here. And uh, I was just saying off air, happy uh, 56th birthday. How does it feel to be 56, man? You're looking on top form, man. <laughs> uh, just a day older than yesterday, my friend. Everything's uh, just trying to slow the inevitable and gradual decline at this point. Mm. Good old aging, right? <laughs> That's right. Yep. <laughs> But at that age, just on that point, at the age you're at now, right, in comparison to one like you were 26, for example, how would you compare that in terms of, just curious to know, in terms of like how you recover and how your body feels day to day, would you say you generally feel sharper and better? Or would you say, you know, kind of just curious? Well, I'm, I'm certainly smarter in the way that I train because uh, I do not recover as quickly as I used to. I put my body through a lot of damage over the years and, uh, you know, a younger man can bounce back from that. But as I aged and I realized that uh, accumulating fatigue eventually would lead to injuries or overreaching to the point where it might take many weeks or even months to get back to your uh, former self. I've been a lot smarter about my training these days. Mm -hmm. That's the key, isn't it? So bodybuilding, Stan, right? I guess, I mean, yeah, I can't even put into words like the what, what you've achieved with bodybuilding and powerlifting is actually insane. But just curious to know how you ended up, because I did bodybuilding as well uh, for a period, obviously nowhere near to level the level you did. Just curious to know what kind of inspired you to get into bodybuilding uh, and were you always like really competitive? Because like it's clear that you're extremely competitive, my man, right? <laughs> Based on everything you've achieved. Just curious to know what, what got you into bodybuilding and have you always been really competitive even from a young age? Oh, yeah. I think that explains most athletes. Uh, type A, always uh, trying to achieve another goal, whether it's a different sport or whether it's, um, uh, you know, achieving – higher levels within a particular sport. But I was a skinny kid. I played soccer. I wrestled 98 pounds as a freshman and sophomore in high school, 106 as a junior. I was 115 as a senior. And I'd only uh, bulked up to about 135 as an 18-year-old freshman in college. So uh, I just wanted to get bigger. And I started looking at the bodybuilding magazines. And of course, that was uh, uh, had become a big dream of mine was to become a pro bodybuilder 135 pound 18 year old you can see the distance between where i was and where i wanted to be uh, and at the time at my height right around six foot i uh, uh i needed to be about 250 pounds on stage because they only had uh under 198 and over 198 
And uh, in order to get a pro card, you had to win the heavyweight class uh, at a at a pro qualifier. So that was the journey that I embarked on. And of course, there was no shortage of people telling me I'd never make it. And uh, it just took many, many, many years. And the thing I kind of liked about bodybuilding in particular is that uh, I, I tended to be a little uh, OCD as a kid. And so as long as I had something to preoccupy myself with, um, and bodybuilding is just that, it's uh, it's very regimented in terms of your diet and your training and your sleep and your supplementation and all that stuff. And you have to be very consistent and uh, you measure everything and uh, it, whether it's food or whether it's your training stimulus and the progression over time, uh, that bode well for me, just all the, the different metrics by which we would track progress. And so you, know, you weigh yourself every day, track your sleep, all of those things. So uh, I think it preoccupied me in such a way that, uh, that uh, it was productive as compared to other ways I could have spent my time, I suppose, in college. So, uh, and, and the whole powerlifting part of it was simply because I thought that the stronger you got, the bigger you would get. And so I just kept lifting heavy, heavy, heavy weights. I realized much later that was not the case, and we can certainly delve into that, but that's, uh, that's kind of how I started. Uh, I was just a skinny kid wanting to get huge and reading the magazines and looking at all the pro bodybuilders. Mm. So you channel that energy into the right place, right? Because it could go anywhere, that energy, as a young boy especially, right? That testosterone. <laughs> I agree. Right I agree. I, I, and I think it, it, uh, it, uh, it worked out well for me. But there's also a dark side to that, right, Stan, as well, in terms of the bodybuilding world. And you've obviously, what I wanted to ask you is, like, in terms of the mindset that you've had to and the discipline and the consistency, and as you say, essentially, we have to be obsessive, right? You have to be literally obsessed to get to the level you did. How did you manage to transfer that into life? Because what I see is some people do that really well, but I see other people, they kind of don't, you know, each to their own, right? We all have different levels of drive and ambition, but you've obviously managed to transfer that into being really successful off the stage. So do you feel like all that, like you say, the obsession, the discipline, the consistency, tracking, all that kind of stuff, do you feel like you managed to transfer that same, those same traits, if you like, into like real life? Yeah, a couple things to say on that. One, I think you can be great at anything, but you can't be great at everything. And you really do need to obsess over whatever it is your primary objective, your goal is. Uh, and everything else is kind of takes a back seat. If it's fitness, then, uh, you know, at the time I just worked in order to support my um, my endeavor into bodybuilding and powerlifting. And that was kind of my focus was bodybuilding and powerlifting. And I just had to make enough money so I could eat and train. And then eventually in the mid nineties there, I discovered that bodybuilding and powerlifting wasn't going to pay the bills. I kind of already knew that. And eventually I, I really wanted to be successful in business. And so uh, right at about 1996, I believe, or thereabouts, 1997, um, I shelved my aspirations to become a pro bodybuilder and uh, I went to work um, and I poured all of the same, as you said, uh, determination, time management and uh, commitment and persistence into, into business. And I finally started my own company and stopped competing. And uh, I was obsessed about that. Uh, talked about it in my video, Stress for Success, where I would work, you know, 18 hours a day and uh, oftentimes at the sacrifice of my health, you know, burning the candle at both ends. 
limiting my sleep, not exercising very effectively and, uh, you know, eating fast food, anything I could do to spend more hours working on my business. And uh, ultimately, I was fortunate that that business thrived. I learned some lessons along the way in terms of what it what uh, was important in terms of taking care of myself. I had a couple instances there where I, I got um, you know pretty worn down and unhealthy, both mentally and physically, and um, committing everything to my business. And then picked up and improved my sleep and my got back into the gym after like a two year hiatus and um, you know started eating healthy again and walking again and uh, it really. Uh, pay dividends in terms of my uh, my business success and my ability to uh, you know to actually do more effective work. And then I didn't compete for nearly ten years. Uh, I built a number of successful companies, and then when I had the time and the resources, um, and when the real estate market collapsed, <laughs> I, uh, I I took a hiatus from business, and I I uh, I spent some money and some time training. I went out and I sought out Flex Wheeler back in 2008 um, and uh, packed up some bags and moved down to San Jose and lived in a hotel room and trained with him for nearly four months. And uh, he, he, I'd already kind of gotten back into the gym pretty consecutively since 2006 and, and uh, won a couple of local shows. But Flex is the one who took me from amateur level to pro level with a, you know, a full commitment back into bodybuilding and powerlifting at the time. And uh, I always say that, that I'm kind of a hypocrite because I didn't have a job per se. I was financially successful. I didn't have kids. I just didn't have any obligations. All I did was eat, sleep, breathe, and think bodybuilding at the time. And Flex, uh, you know, trained me every day, morning and night, six days a week, slept, you know, eight plus hours a night, napped every afternoon, eight, six, seven meals a day. Uh, it was brutal, but I ended up getting my pro card as a result. And, and again, I poured everything I had into that one venture. And I, I think oftentimes people think that I've done a lot of things, but I didn't do them concurrently. I, I would do one and then the other. And uh, it happened in business. It also happened in powerlifting and bodybuilding, although similar. I would only I would train specifically for bodybuilding. And then I would switch and I would train specifically for powerlifting. And they're very different in, in their demands in the, uh, in the manner in which I approach those. So that, that kind of, I, I think, summarizes how I was able to do all of that. Uh, but I actually compartmentalized it. I did it at different times. You can do anything, but you can't do everything. Absolutely spot on. I'm glad you yeah. mentioned that as well, because sometimes from the outside in, people think, oh, he's juggling, spinning all these plates. But in reality, you just went absolutely all out relentlessly with one pursuit. <laughs> Agreed. Yeah. And you also can't get caught up in the enormity of the outcome of the task of the of the entirety of the task. Uh, you have to break that down into bite sized chunks as to where you are now and not uh, the destination. Otherwise, uh, you, you know, it's becomes paralysis by analysis. You start looking at, uh, you know, you start becoming a devil's advocate. I'm never going to be able to achieve that because it's uh, it's such a lofty goal, you know, either whether that's you know, building a multi-million dollar company or whether that's becoming a pro bodybuilder uh, from a hundred and, you know, 35 pound, 18 year old, that, that's a long, that was a 10 year, uh, 10 years worth of training before I shelved the goal. And then another 10 years before I came back and, and gave it another try. So, uh, you know, all told it was, it was damn near 20 years of, uh, you know, a, a pursuit and passion of mine. I think being around someone having a mentor almost though, right? Like Flex Wheeler. 
what an inspiration that is. And the, 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 the mindset of just building that wall brick by brick, right? I think that's such a big lesson and what you touched on then. People look at the whole wall, don't they? And it, essentially, it's just building it brick by brick. But you mentioned some stuff then, like time management, commitment, persistence, and how you do anything is how you do everything as well, right? So those, those are things that I always talk about discipline, consistency, but those things then really stood out to me because it's like, yeah, time management. Obviously, you need to be on the ball with that, <laughs> the level you're competing, and then building the business, persistence, commitment. Just curious, not to go off too much, Flex Lewis. Have you met Flex Lewis? I have. He's a great guy. Yeah, I live here in Las Vegas, and so I've trained at his gym, and I've met him, and he's just a super representative of the sport. Okay. Yeah, because he's come from Wales. I'm, he's from South Wales as well, where I'm from back in the UK. He's a fellow Welshman, you know? So. Yeah, well, he's done you guys proud. He's uh, People everywhere in the industry admire him, as you know. Oh, 100%. With the, what you mentioned earlier with the powerlifting, you said, I didn't realize you could focus on being as strong as possible and you know transfer that into bodybuilding or aesthetics. What was that learning curve for well, you? Well, go on. No, I, th I what I said was, is I thought the stronger you got, the bigger you would get. And it took me many years to realize that that's not the case, that bodybuilding and powerlifting are two different things. Uh, bodybuilding, trying to isolate muscle groups and uh, work them through full ranges of motion. And back at the time, you know, we believed that uh, uh, both muscle damage and uh, uh, you know, getting the pump, uh, metabolic stress, we refer to that as, you know, sarcoplastic, sarcoplasmic hypertrophy. We really believe that that drove hypertrophy. And uh, now with, you know, Brad Schoenfeld's work over the last many years and others, uh, we see that mechanical tension is really the primary driver. Uh, and so in bodybuilding, you, you know, you want to work through fuller range of motions. You want to isolate muscle groups, uh, uh, train with probably a little greater frequency and volume. And then in powerlifting, um, you don't necessarily want to train at any greater range of motion than that, which is required to perform the actual powerlift. And, uh, you know, deadlifting and benching, of course, is, is you know, going to be the same. Uh, but squatting, you, you don't necessarily want to go ass to grass uh, if you can just take it to 90 and, uh, you know, do your low back squats and you recruit multiple muscle groups, you know, not just your quads, but your glutes and your uh, adductors and your spinal erectors. And so, you know, it kind of just depends, genetically speaking, um, what you what muscle groups are going to respond for you. I could take three different guys and put them on the bench press and one of them will get bigger triceps, one of them will get bigger shoulders, one of them will get a bigger chest. It's very individualistic. Uh, and the only way to improve that is maybe to, to do some pre-exhaust or some isolatory work uh, so they can get a better mind-muscle connection or to try and, you know, lift the sternum up and keep the shoulders back to try and, uh, you know, minimize the contribution of the shoulders. There's a whole host of things you can do <clears throat> with squatting, uh, you know, a high bar squat with, with the knees over the toes might get you more quad work and a low bar squat with a vertical shin might get you more glute and, and uh, uh, spinal erectors. And so, you know, you just kind of got to dive in and see what is developing for you and then do a variety of different movements uh, for bodybuilding. But for powerlifting, you know, you're kind of constrained by the fact that you, you know, you want to put yourself in the best mechanical position to lift the most weight. And that isn't always the best position to uh, develop uh, the most well-rounded musculature for hypertrophy for bodybuilding, uh, plus the loads. You know, you oftentimes work up to singles and doubles and uh, you don't necessarily want to get um, within a rep or two of failure on every set. 
Uh, <clears throat> he probably can't do quite as much heavy volume. Uh, so I just I didn't think that uh, that powerlifting at the end of the day really contributed. Matter of fact, Flex Wheeler wouldn't let me do a single squat bench or deadlift when he was training me. Deadlift's not a significant range of motion. I already had uh, fully developed back and glutes. Squats, I, I used a vertical shin, so I had my glutes and uh, adductors and uh, spinal erectors were very strong, but my quads were weak uh, for bodybuilding in terms of, of size, if I want to talk about, uh, you know, in comparison to aesthetics for balance on the body. And uh, bench press, I had developed some real big shoulders, but my chest was kind of lagging as a result. And so, you know, for chest, he put me on incline dumbbell presses and made me uh, use lighter weights through a greater range of motion, wrapping my pec around the rib cage, get a full stretch. And um, for legs, he put me on the leg press and made me bring my feet in and down so I could get more knee angles, so I could expose more quadricep uh, muscle length and, and develop the quads better and try and stay away from the glutes and lower back. And, um, you know, those were, those were for him, those were better for, for bodybuilding. And then, you know, just a few months after I got done working with flex, I, I went down and spent a number of months with uh, Mark Bell doing powerlifting and we did exactly the opposite, you know, heavy, heavy loads, uh, low bar squats and deadlifts and, uh, you know, floor presses and bands and chains, you know, all the things that you do for powerlifting that, uh, I gained 30 pounds from the time I won my pro card, uh, I won my pro card and then I went to Mark Bell's to train with him and over a seven week period, I gained over 30 pounds and I lost an inch in my legs. Tells you a little bit something about the, the stimulus with flex wheeler. We were doing 16 sets for legs with 20 rep sets with two minute rests. And with Mark Bell, we might do five total sets and with 10 minute rests with singles and doubles. And so it's a very different stimulus. And, uh, you know, you could just tell from that example, even though I was gaining a significant amount of weight because with Flex, I was dieting. With Mark, I was bulking. Um, my, in terms of just uh, putting a tape measure on a muscle, I actually lost size in my legs from the, the different stimulus, from the powerlifting stimulus. So I, I hope that kind of covers um, what my experience was and how I think uh, you can optimize either bodybuilding or powerlifting. Uh, and I do think that bodybuilding lent itself well to powerlifting uh, because I think it, it dramatically increased my conditioning, uh, my cardiovascular conditioning to do that many sets and reps. You do such a variety of exercises that you end up with no weak points. You're working rear delts and you're doing single leg stuff and uh, you know unilateral work and uh, all the little muscles, what you might consider the little muscles from a variety of angles through a full range of motion. So uh, you're just very well-rounded. So anything you touch in powerlifting, uh, you don't have any weaknesses. Mm. How was the mindset shift though, Stan? I'm really curious to know how you managed to shift that mindset from being driven by aesthetics, mm. right? Because it is tough. Because I, I always talk about this, right? you be compared to, you know, you're constantly obsessed with physique, as we say. And then it's like, bang, yeah. take my attention away from that now, train with Mark Bell and just lift hard and heavy and not think about anything else. It's a tough shift. Yeah. You know, I didn't mind because I was a skinny kid, so I had a fast metabolism. and I never got too fat, I could say. You know, there were a couple meets there at the very end when I stayed. I, I didn't diet down for bodybuilding in between those meets, and I stayed heavy, uh, which I don't recommend, to be honest. I like to have my powerlifters periodize their weight and uh, drop down to under 15% uh, at least once a year. But uh, I, I wasn't too concerned. I was just interested in how much weight I could lift. 
the mindset for bodybuilding was uh, bodybuilding. I think was two completely different challenges. Bodybuilding, it's deep water. You you end up doing a lot of volume, a lot of sets to near failure. Uh, your cardio gets challenged significantly in the in that environment. Um, powerlifting is, I got to be honest with you, at, at, towards the end of my career, when I'm 44, 45 years old, and I'm still climbing under 900 pound squats, there's a fear component involved there. Because it's not a matter of if, it's when. The iron always wins. And you start seeing these videos, uh, old videos of people getting crushed under you know, heavy squats and kneecaps blown out and, and quads torn and, uh, you know, pec tears. And uh, I've suffered a, a whole host of different, you know, minor injuries, uh, you know, glute pull and hamstring pull and lat pull, you know, things like that. I, hard to call them tears, tore a calf muscle. And, you know, I had a whole host of certainly no shortage of back pain. Um, but nothing that required surgery, nothing I couldn't rehab from, certainly some things that turned black and blue and, you know, some limping all throughout the career. But um, at some point, uh, if you're worried about whether or not you're going to be able to finish a 900-pound squat uh, and you get under the bar with some trepidation and fear, uh, it's time to hang it up. And that's uh, it's kind of at the end of my last meet, I was like, I, I can't do that again. I can't get under another one of those because it's just, a, it's not a, it's, it's not an eventuality. It's a certainty that uh, something's going to completely tear off the bone. I used to carry around my own spud straps, you know, those cell, those spotting straps that you wrap around the monolift. Mm -hmm. I had them in my bag. I bought my own set because at some of these meets, they wouldn't have spud straps. And I, I didn't necessarily want to rely on the spotters. If because uh, I've seen, you know, too many instances where the spotters weren't able to catch the bar and uh, and somebody got crushed underneath the weight that probably saved me a little bit. That gave me a little bit of confidence that even in the worst case scenario, uh, the bar wasn't going to land on me and crush me onto the ground. And so uh, I became a little less concerned about the injury uh, potential. But uh, obviously, you know, I, it was in my mind if I was buying those straps and making sure they were hooked up at the meets. Um, I, I thought that, that I was pushing weights that quite uh, possibly and certainly um, eventually would, uh, would beat me. There's something different in it when you've got that butt like nine. I feel so anxious just like literally thinking about 900 pounds on my back. It's something, it's a different feeling, right? Even if for me, I've got yeah. like 100K on my back, it's like, okay, I'm not thinking of anything else right now, right? I don't care what's going on in my life. Just got to do this squat. Um, speaking about building muscle, right, Stan, you said about mechanical tension being the most important thing, right, for actually building muscle and hypertrophy. Talk us through what you say the fundamental, from a training perspective first, what are the fundamental things that people need to focus on when it comes to maximizing muscle gain? And I know there's a lot of variance from person to person, right? But I know you just mentioned you know, mechanical tension. Yeah. And again, we used to think that mechanical tension, metabolic stress and muscular damage were three different uh, components contributing to hypertrophy. And now it appears that me mechanical tension is the primary driver and that metabolic stress and uh, muscle damage are just passengers. You're just, they're ultimately going to happen if you get a sufficient stimulus, uh, mechanical tension stimulus to, to uh, uh, elicit a benefit that those other things will happen. Uh, but if you were to uh, isolate those other things, uh, you may not see 
the growth that you uh, that you had hoped for. So the big things, uh, you know, obviously uh, we talked about uh, you know frequency. Want to train? Seems now everybody part twice a week. Uh, I'm at the age where twice every eight days is about the best I can do, depending on the the intensity. Uh, volume is uh, you know how many sets are you going to do per week, and that's going to be somewhere between ten and twenty sets per week. Um, we recently saw some research suggesting that you could go even higher than that. Like you said, it's very individualistic. Um, but certainly people can grow on as little as, as four or five sets twice a week. You know, you do four or five sets of chest twice a week. That gets you your, you know, 10 sets a week. Uh, I prefer to stay in that range somewhere under 12. Uh, I think Jeff Nipper did a, a real good, um, compilation of studies to show that, Kind of once you get north, for most people, again, a lot of very inter-individual variability, once you get north of six hard sets for a particular muscle group in one given workout, you see significantly diminished returns. And, uh, and you would rather not accumulate excessive fatigue and come back and repeat that bout as soon as possible within three days uh, in order to accumulate you know, volume over time rather than try and uh, kill yourself in any one workout. Um, so that's frequency, that's volume. Load, it seems, you know, you're going to get hypertrophy anywhere between five and 30 reps, uh, as long as you take that set to within a rep or two of failure. Um, but you're going to get stronger at the five rep range with the heavier loads. There's no question about that. Strength is specific. There's a nervous system component. Um, and a bigger muscle can become a stronger muscle. And so you know, it bodes well to do hypertrophy training. Eddie Cohn twice a year competed in powerlifting. And then between those times, he would do hypertrophy training. He would do leg pressing and bent rows and behind the neck shoulder presses and, uh, you know, things like that to just to build up his, his musculature overall. Uh, and he went from 165 pound competitor to a 242 pound competitor, to the best of my knowledge, throughout his 25 year career. So, um, uh, frequency, volume, load, uh, uh, we talked about anywhere from five to 30 reps and um, next up might be range of motion. Obviously the greater range of motion, the stretch to the lengthened position of the muscle is going to elicit a better hypertrophy response than a, a, you know, a short rep. And that would be, that's your ass to grass. That's your 120 degree knee angle on leg extensions and leg presses and hack squats. If you can achieve it. Uh, I actually use an angle plate for my squats uh, or heels on my shoes because I don't have very good calf ankle mobility or calf flexibility. And so in order for me to get a full stretch on my quad, um, you know, on a leg press, I mentioned bringing your feet in and down. That's not necessarily required, but um, you can get a lot of range of motion in the hips that might not lend itself as well to the quad. The range of motion should be, you should be concentrating on getting that knee angle to stretch that quad as much as possible. Uh, tempo. You know, we used to think these slow eccentric negatives would uh, give us more growth, but in fact, anywhere from two to five seconds is uh, is a good tempo. We don't see any improvement in uh, hypertrophy from a 10 second eccentric uh, controlled load. You just want to control the weight. You don't want to slam it down. Um, and, and again, the eccentrics cause more muscle damage, more fatigue, uh, but it doesn't translate to better growth. And so uh, I would argue that you'd want to keep that on the shorter end, uh, particularly if you're working with athletes. I, I generally tend to eliminate a lot of the eccentric load. I'll do box squats. I'll do uh, camber bar good mornings where they uh, they drop the weight down onto spud straps and only do the concentric. So 
I like to do a lot of sled stuff. You know, concentric is big for me for athletes because I don't need to create fatigue that carries over into their training. Whether it's, uh, you know, UFC fighters that I work with or football players, uh, you don't want them to have DOMS. That's a, that's a bad place to be. If you're a good trainer, you want to stay away from that. Uh, so we, we talked about, I think that's the bulk of the uh, uh, rest periods. That's, that's another one. Let's throw in there. Um, uh, Schoenfeld did some great work. I think he compared one-minute rest periods to three-minute rest periods. And we found that the longer rest periods resulted in the greater hypertrophy and greater strength benefit. Uh, and that's a lot, you know, largely because um, the substrates that uh, you utilize during a lift, um, things like uh, creatine phosphate, that needs to be totally restored before you can have a, you know, a subsequent set that's reasonably close in weight and repetitions to the previous sets. Uh, your nervous system needs to recover from, you know, that heavy, hard uh, intense set to within a rep or two of failure. Um, and your cardiovascular system, obviously, if you know, you're gasping for air, when you go into your second set, the limiting factor might be your fitness, your cardiovascular fitness, not your muscular tension. So we want to limit the, uh, those other, uh, potential limiting factors. We want to reduce those. And so the longer rest periods lend themselves well, uh, to, um, uh, to better hypertrophy and strength outcomes. And I would say with strength, even longer, maybe four or five minutes between sets. I think that covers the bulk of it. The splits are, you know, really a matter of personal preference and schedule. People say, what's the best split, you know, whether it's uh, upper body, lower body, or whether it's push pull legs or uh, that it doesn't matter as long as you have sufficient recovery time and you can get the adequate amount of volume, frequency, load, um, tempo, range of motion uh, and uh, rest periods. The uh, when you train is really a matter of when it fits your schedule and you'll be consistent. And uh, do you have enough uh, time to accomplish all of those things in a given workout? So I think that covers the bulk of what uh, of what really matters for both hypertrophy and strength. Awesome. Yeah. And you touched on so many really like really good points there because I always communicate this to clients, you know, go into failure. A lot of people, a lot of my clients are like type A's and they really, they want to go to failure. A lot of the times they want to cross the line and do more than they need to. I know you're smiling because you, because you coach athletes as well, right? Sometimes these are the hardest people to train, right? Because <laughs> they want to get after it. Yeah. You, you said about stopping short of failure. Oh, go on. You're going to say something on that. Well, I did it to myself for years and unnecessarily. So you just accumulate uh, excessive fatigue per the stimulus and so you're kind of better off leaving a rep in the tank. And we've had many studies now. People go to failure versus people leave a rep in the tank. Uh, there's no improved outcome. And maybe over time, actually, it is they decline because they just don't recover from the workouts. And so it's unnecessary. And I hate to say it because I prided myself on going to failure and beyond and getting a spot and then doing negatives, you know, eccentric loaded negatives where they're pushing down on the weight. And uh, But it, it's completely unnecessary. It, it doesn't it's no more beneficial. Uh, and, uh, especially when it comes to athletes, because you're just, you're creating doms and you don't want to do that to an athlete. hundred percent. It was an absolute game changer for me, Stan, switching over to training the full body back in like 2016, just as I was kind of finishing my bodybuilding stuff. Although I did another show three years after that, it was an absolute like game changer for me training full body three times per week. Oh, in fact, mind pump, our friends shout out mind pump, right? Cause they brought me onto this. And uh, yeah. I actually did one of their programs back in like 2015 and it was doing the bands on the days in between and stuff. Right. 
And that was like mm -hmm. the best I'd seen my body respond in a long time. And you, because the research does show, right? You can touch on this now, just in terms of the volume, if you spread it out, let's just say, for example, you were to do, you mentioned about how many sets per workout. Let's say you were, you mentioned six sets uh, per body part. Let's say you were to do uh, 18 sets in one workout, say on one body part on a Monday, and then not touch that body part again for another week, let's say, and do it the following Monday. Um versus doing it on a Monday, perhaps doing six sets on a Monday, six sets Wednesday, six sets on Friday, just for argument's sake. Spreading that volume out, if you get the intensity right, of course, um, proves to be, like, because you mentioned training frequency, proves to be more beneficial for muscle gain. Is that right? Or somewhere along those lines? That is correct. And it also give, affords you an opportunity for a progression. And that's one thing I left out of that list. It's probably one of the most important that you have to progress your loads over time meaning either adding one rep or five pounds or two and a half pounds or 10 pounds, whatever the exercise might be. Uh, in e each successive workout, if possible, but certainly weekly or, or definitely monthly, if you're not getting stronger, adding a rep, adding a uh, five pounds, then you're not progressing. And so that becomes a key component. And then adding volume is also one way, like I say, one more set. Um, and so you might start out by doing, you know, three sets twice a week, and then you can work up to four sets twice a week and then five sets twice a week and then six sets twice a week. Maybe you go down to three sets, three times a week. Uh, those are all ways to progress uh, over time, whether it's frequency, volume, load, uh, those, all those things can be, those factors can be manipulated. Yeah, really, really good point. And also, I think people mistake in the crazy hat, and we, we used to do this, right, for sure, where you judge the quality of a workout by, like, how sore you are the next day, for example, right? And it's, like, almost yeah. for me now, it's the opposite. I'm like, right, if I feel like I've done something, Stan, the next day, but I'm not too – if I'm not sore for longer than a day or two, I've kind of hit the sweet spot, you know? Well, exactly, and, and that usually reflects in your subsequent bouts, in your next workout. If you do too much and create too much fatigue and don't recover from it, then your next workout, you're not as strong. Uh, you, maybe you can't do as much volume or load or, uh, or what have you. And that should be a good indicator that you either overtrained or, or under-recovered. And maybe you need an extra day and you might be better off not digging such a deep hole uh, because your body, you know, it may only recover to the point where it got to where it was. It didn't super compensate to the point to where now it's ready to do more. And that's a pretty critical component. I think one of the best quotes uh, I've heard in, in a long time came from uh, the folks at Barbell Medicine. Uh, Jordan Fagenbaum said, uh, he says, you don't add weight to get stronger. You get stronger so you can add weight. I just thought that was in incredibly intuitive uh, in terms of, um, you know, how you should auto-regulate, which is another important term, uh, so that you can get stronger and then add weight when you feel strong rather than forcing yourself to meet a particular, uh, uh, what would you call it? A, a program that you'd kind of written out for yourself. Uh, sometimes the progression's not always there. And if you're patient, it'll come just be consistent. And then eventually you'll get into a workout and you'll be like, damn, that warm up or that, you know, second to last set was really light. It moved really fast today. I think I'm going to try an extra five pounds. And uh, that's how you continue to beat the book. And you mentioned cardio then, right, with weight training, because essentially when you're lifting weights and you're doing it properly 
and you've got a proper program, as you say, you're getting your heart rate up basically for sustained periods. I'd love to talk on that because I have this challenge a lot in terms of cardio versus strength training when it comes to, let's say, fat loss. And, you know, a lot of people say you need to do an adequate amount of cardio zone two and then maybe one zone five, whatever is a week. But how would you explain that to the listeners in terms of the value of strength training for sustainable fat loss and longevity uh, versus cardio for fat loss and longevity? Yeah, I don't look at, uh, it's a hard conversation because people always get butt hurt. Um, there is, you know, there's two sides to the equation. Obviously, there's uh, total daily energy intake. It's all the calories that you eat. And then total daily energy expenditure. And the vast majority of that is your basal metabolic rate, which isn't hugely influenced by your muscle mass. It's a very small amount. Now, muscle mass in motion, yeah, it's going to burn more calories than less muscle mass in motion. But just having an extra pound of muscle is only going to burn about six calories uh, at rest, six extra calories. So if you're 20 pounds heavier, maybe 120 calories a day, it's not enormously, uh, it doesn't contribute as big as, say, your basal metabolic rate, which is 70% of the calories you burn in a day, uh, just at rest. And then the next one on the list is, uh, is your non-exercise activity. You know, 15% of the calories you burn in a day. Uh, are burned just walking around, just blinking and, uh, you know, just cooking your food and uh, walking to and from the car, whatever, just just things that you do, uh, just that aren't, that aren't really deliberate exercise. And then 10% is the thermic effect of food, just eating food burns calories and protein being the highest of those. Um, and the lastly is your, your uh, exercise activity thermogenesis. And that's only 5% of the total calories you burn. Now, certainly you can invest significantly more efforts and, and burn more calories and exercise energy expenditure. Um, one of the challenges with that is after you get to a particular point, um, uh, your body will start compensating for the extra energy expenditure by reducing non-exercise energy expenditure and increasing hunger. So you might go crush yourself in a workout and end up compensating by for that by sitting more and eating more and that's what they call the constrained energy model and that's not to say that exercise doesn't work and it's not great for your general health and your cardiovascular fitness or heart and lungs uh, but it's to say that beyond a certain point you know, we don't you know it's very really individualistic i don't know what that point is necessarily but you certainly want to get you know 20 30 minutes of cardio a day some of that can be like you said what type of cardio is it zone two is it zone five you know is it hit training uh, which you certainly get from your weightlifting because anything lifted within a rep or two of failure is going to, you know, jack your heart rate up pretty high. Uh, there is some uh, added benefit in terms of VO2 max from doing a longer endurance, a longer steady state uh, zone two. But, you know, you can, you can get away with doing anything for that. You could bike, you could uh, take a, a really brisk walk. Um, you could swim, uh, you know, you could drag sleds. There's a whole host of things you could do for a period of time to get your heart rate up elevated for an extended period of time to get that cardiovascular, extra cardiovascular benefit. But I wouldn't necessarily look at it in terms of, you know, strictly burning calories. Um, certainly a competitive bodybuilder might throw in extra cardio uh, pre-contest to burn more calories or burn more fat. But I, I didn't do that. I just trained twice a day. I didn't recommend that to many of the professional, you know, IFBB Pro uh, Olympic Olympia competitors uh, that I trained, I, I didn't recommend lots of steady state cardio. I would just get them to do two a day training. It's the way Flex did with me. I'd go in the morning and work out and I'd go in at night and work out. At least then 
you know, I'm cautious to bring up uh, the interference effect because generally speaking for the vast majority of the population, it's, it's probably a smaller deal. Um, but when you get to that level, I would rather be stimulating muscle than doing a long steady state cardio if, if and where possible to burn the same number of calories, uh, but to potentially have a different, uh, your physique, you know, I say form follows function for your physique to respond to a, a different stimulus. And I always found that when I started doing a lot of steady state cardio, my legs would get thin. I'm a taller bodybuilder with less leg mass to lose. Um, you know, some of these guys have, you know, they're five, seven with these ginormous 34 inch quads, and maybe they can afford to, uh, to lose a little leg mass, but I couldn't. And so I, I had to preserve all of it. So I was constantly moving, like you said, doing bands between workouts and stuff. Uh, that's a stimulus that, you know, even dragging sleds, that's a stimulus that, that can prevent you from uh, experiencing any, any, uh, any of the muscle shrinking because, um, you know, certainly any aggressive cardio beyond lists, you know, low intensity, steady state, um, your, your body finds the muscle to be inefficient. It's, uh, you know, it has a high energy demand. It has a high water demand. It has a high nutrient demand. It's just not terribly efficient to perform that, that exercise. And so, you know, like comparing sprinters to distance runners, you, you, you know, form follows function. You're going to get a very different physique outlook depending on the stimulus that you provide. So, at the risk of suggesting there's an interference effect, because I know that that's a, a hot topic in the industry, uh, I'm just trying to optimize everything in the direction of the uh, ultimate goal, which for bodybuilding is going to be uh, retaining as much lean mass as possible. Uh, and then, uh, you know, getting on stage and having all of that available to show. And just for the average person, right, who are trying to improve the way their body looks and live longer, essentially from everything you're saying, strength training needs to be the cornerstone of what you're doing with training, right? Essentially. Yeah, a little bit of both. I mean, just lifting weights. Uh, ultimately, I think that strength is a bigger, I want to say from what the research suggests is that the strength is a bigger predictor of uh, lifespan and health span than sheerly muscle mass. Uh, I know they go hand in hand, but I, I think most of the studies are on, on strength rather than size. I, I think obviously muscle tissue has a benefit in terms of, uh, you know, if somebody injures themselves and becomes immobile for a while, they'll, they'll feed off of that muscle tissue. Uh, in, in severe circumstances, hospitalization or, or what have you, that muscle tissue becomes very valuable as a, as a, a source. Um, but strength in general is, is, you know, we've had plenty of studies now in elderly populations showing, you know, they generally measure a proxy like grip strength just to show that the stronger people live longer, um, primarily because they're, uh, they're uh, less susceptible to trip and fall injuries. They're uh, a little, a little more apt to be able to pr pr protect themselves from that, and maybe breaking a bone, and subsequent to which uh, we see a significant, you know, a very rapid decline in health, especially with the elderly population. So, yeah, strength is never a weakness. Mark's been saying it for years. I think Mark Bell has been saying it for years, and I, I've kind of followed that model throughout all of my career. That uh, and the neat thing about bodybuilding or powerlifting or lifting weights in general is it's so uh immediate so the the feedback is immediate it's so measurable and, and um if you go to the gym and you're you underperform you generally know that something happened within the last two or three days and certainly within the last week that affected your performance and uh, if you're keeping track you can you know maybe i got didn't get as much sleep as i should maybe i didn't get as much food as i should maybe you know i wasn't hydrated maybe i had a, a very stressful day uh you know all those things could accumulate and such that your performance would decline. 
and you'd realize that that the performance is ultimately the measure of uh, how disciplined you were outside the gym uh, and maybe how consistent you've been in your training. And then, you know, you, you proceed to try and resolve all of those variables. Uh, I'm going to get more sleep. I'm going to eat a little better because next time I come to the gym, I don't want to be this weak. Uh, and Mark Abel also said weakness is never a strength. And uh, there's many things that, that I've seen over the years that have, uh, that have created weakness for people. And, uh, you know, I try and get them to avoid those kinds of things, things like bodybuilders taking a bunch of anti-estrogens. Uh, they end up getting weaker. Uh, lack of carbohydrates will make you weaker uh, and make your performance suffer, uh, particularly, you know, uh, anaerobic performance in the gym, weightlifting in particular. Um, things like antibiotics, you know, interrupting with your digestion, things like uh, anti-inflammatories, NSAIDs. Lots of those things can have an adverse effect, even things like uh, metformin has a, a pretty pronounced effect on loss of strength and cardiovascular fitness uh, in healthy populations. So um, uh, antacid medications, you know, for people with GERD uh, interferes with uh, protein breakdown and uh, mineral absorption. So all of those things can have an adverse effect on, uh, you know, sleep apnea is another one. You hear me talk a lot about getting a CPAP and trying to resolve sleep apnea. So the quality of the sleep um, all of those things have a pretty significant impact on performance and weakness is never a strength. And so I, uh, I'm always measuring how strong I am in the gym and it tells me whether or not, you know, I'm doing something wrong outside the gym. My audience will never forgive me if I don't pick your brain quickly on diet and nutrition, right? Tell us more about the vertical diet, Stan, that the concept that you created in the book and everything else. Yeah. I mean, the vertical diet is everything we've just discussed. Uh, it, it's everything I wanted my clients to do is kind of the culmination of everything I've learned over the years. And so it's not just diet. It, it is, you know, blood testing and hydration and sleep and, um, you know, injury prevention and recovery and uh, all that stuff. So it's really comprehensive. Uh, but as far as the diet goes, um, I mean, it, it's really simple information. Uh, calories are king. If you want to gain weight, you got to be in a surplus. You want to lose weight, you got to be in a deficit. Uh, protein is the, you know, the key macronutrient. Uh, you want to get sufficient protein. The ISSN recommends about four evenly spaced feedings a day because you can't store protein in the body. And so it, you got to, you know, get sufficient feedings of protein throughout the day. And this is ultimately for performance. And it also helps with, you know, the thermic effect of food and, and lean mass retention for dieting, et cetera. Um, I, I want my clients to use a variety of protein sources. A lot of my diet came from uh, you know, training, uh, bodybuilders for shows when they were over restrictive, they would just eat egg whites, tilapia, you know, uh, broccoli, protein powder and, and peanut butter. And, uh, I found these diets to be hugely restrictive. And so I would, you know, you can have a similar caloric intake and provide uh, a similar outcome, but with much greater energy and health retained. Uh, by utilizing, you know, a variety of different proteins. Uh, I kept red meat in the diet, particularly for women, for iron and B12 and zinc. Um, uh, I kept the egg yolk in, you know, biotin, choline, those kinds of things. Uh, you know, biotin being important for skin, hair, and nails, and a lot of women suffering from uh, a, a lot of problems with hair loss, et cetera. Getting sufficient iodine for thyroid function, which can also re result in, you know, metabolism slowing. Um, potassium, you know, potato fruit, um, calcium, yogurt, um, uh, omega-3, salmon. So I, I really, the diet intended to build a foundation upon which you can create, you know, any type of athlete. Uh, can't put a three-bedroom house on a two-bedroom foundation. If I've got a, 
you know, an athlete that needs to perform at a particular level and you can make sure that they're getting not only their, their calories right and their macronutrients right, but also their micronutrients right. And so I have a really diverse uh, foundation of foods that I want them to eat. Um, we talked about GERD and digestion and microbiome uh, density and diversity. So it's, a, it's intended to be a more inclusive diet plan. And then in my experience from working with dieters, they tend to have restricted foods for so long that they end up uh, with, uh, uh, with IBS or IBD or other digestive distress disorders, um, in which case oftentimes we have to draw from a, a low FODMAP menu. And in my bulkers, uh, the big guys, I find that they end up with fatty liver disease and uh, you know metabolic syndrome, NAFLD, non-alcoholic fatty liver, and high blood pressure and high blood sugars, uh, um, uh, high cholesterol, uh, LDL in particular. Uh, all of those things I see very commonly in my big athletes. And so uh, the diet endeavors to control blood pressure and reduce cholesterol um, by reducing saturated fats. I use lean meats, uh, 96.4 beef, uh, top sirloin steak and then egg egg white blends and uh, uh, plenty of salmon nuts uh, you know avocado and, and olive oil just try and keep saturated fats down so my big athletes don't uh, accumulate fatty liver at a, at a you know at a rate that causes them to be unhealthy so it's on both ends of the spectrum from both my bodybuilding years and my powerlifting years and my experience training those athletes at high school collegiate and professional level that I, I designed the diet to to really be uh, healthier and to provide them a foundation that would help them perform better for longer uh, in controlling some of these, you know, mitigating some of the risks associated with competing. And you're very open as well. I heard you saying on a recent podcast, you know, it's different from person to person, right? You've said, you know, you hear good uh, testimonials from the carnivore space and the vegan space and the kids. Yep. And it's so much variance again from person to person. But you mentioned about protein, right? And you have me thinking, because I listened to something you said recently, I have about 300 grams of protein. I weigh about 200, 200 pounds. So I'm probably having more, potentially more than I need to, about 1.5 grams per pound of body weight. But you mentioned about a, a gram per pound of body weight generally. How does it work in terms of protein absorption if you go towards the top end? Because I'm thinking of dropping it down now. Because I know also you mentioned, if you wouldn't mind, just long story short, just breaking down, I think you said you have about 40% of your calories coming from protein. And then you said about 30% fat, give or take, no more than that, and the rest carbs. If you could break that down for us in terms of the macros and protein absorption, I know that's kind of a broad yeah. question. I think general, if I go to 40%, it's probably a woman that's trying to lose weight and I'm using it for its satiety benefit. Mm. Um, I actually will lower protein for athletes who are trying to gain weight because for the same reason, because I'm trying to avoid them being full. I want, I want to... Uh, I want to minimize the satiety aspect and in a calorie surplus, and certainly with uh, sufficient carbohydrates, uh, they're protein sparing. And so uh, you won't, you, you won't see any, any decrease in, in uh, hypertrophy, even if your protein comes down to say 0.8 grams per pound, or if you get a huge athlete, that's, you know, 350 plus pounds, um, you can come down to 0.7 grams per pound. Generally speaking, because they have a really high body fat, most of them have a significantly high body fat. You only need to fuel the lean mass. And so uh, it's a very different conversation if you're talking about weight loss than if you're talking about performance. We just don't see in the research that anything more than about 1.2 grams per pound is, gonna, is going to contribute to more muscle gain uh, or better recovery. And it might be a satiety benefit, which is great for weight loss, um, but 
so in excess of that, it's unnecessary, but not harmful. Uh, we've seen two plus, maybe even three grams per pound. Um, God, I want, I'm forgetting the lab. But, uh, I, I think it was Dr. Jose Antonio's research, the protein overfeeding studies out of the ISSN. Um, we didn't see any any uh, adverse effects on the kidney unless you've got a pre-existing kidney disease. It, it's not a problem to eat more protein. It's just that it won't uh, make it won't give you more hypertrophy or strength uh, or muscle repair than say 1.2 grams per pound. Now you asked another question about how much can you absorb, and uh, your body will digest and absorb all of the protein. How much of it will be utilized for muscle protein synthesis and, and uh, repair? Um, again, that's back to about a gram per pound or thereabouts. Anything north of that will be used for other things, uh, if not energy, even though it's not the most efficient uh, way or fat storage, ultimately, even though, again, it's not a terribly efficient way to uh, it's, a, it's a, a long process to convert fats into, into or convert proteins into fats as is carbs. It's uh, it's not a very easy process. Only a small percentage of carbohydrates are converted into fats. And so I generally like to keep proteins around 30 to 35% of total calories. We see in some of the research that also helps with insulin sensitivity. Uh, that research was done against a Mediterranean diet, which is typically 18% versus a high protein diet, which is about 30%. We see improvements in blood sugar control, uh, as well as satiety, again, and thermic effect of food and lean mass retention. So I, I like to keep that around 30%. I like to keep fats under 30%. And I would, for dieting, I would continue to push those down further and further um, until I got probably no lower. And again, this is gonna depend on the individual. Uh, for men, probably no lower than 70 or 80 grams. For women, no lower than 60 or 50 grams, just because fats are important for uh, health, uh, A, D, E, and K, you know, moving fat-soluble vitamins around. They're important for sleep at some point when you get fats too low. They're important for hormones, manufacturing. Uh, and so you want to have a sufficient amount. But fats beyond that, which provide those health benefits, uh, don't benefit performance, which is why I want to leave a, a big uh, space etched out for carbohydrates, which are, uh, in terms of your total calorie intake, the rest. If you've uh, you know got a 2,000 calorie uh, allotment uh, allowance for your total calories for the day and 30% of that is protein and 25% of that is fat. It's going to leave you 45% of that is carbohydrates. And so uh, that's kind of how I calculate carbohydrates. They are the rest. What's left over between your total caloric intake and your protein and fat uh, numbers, macros. And then I, you know, I, sometimes I like to, to move those around to the uh, front and back load the workout itself training twice a day, it doesn't matter. You just eat them in every meal. I also like to see bigger meals for dieters for breakfast. Uh, it seems to provide them uh, better satiety in subsequent meals, better blood sugar control in subsequent meals. Uh, and it's also a pretty important moment uh, at the end of a fast, break, break fast breakfast, um, at which your muscles, uh, you know, you can, you can initiate muscle protein synthesis and start to uh, build and repair and get kind of started on your day. And so I, I do try and put in a pretty large breakfast, uh, men and women both with high in protein. And that's yeah, pretty much summarizes my my philosophy on on all the calories, macros, micros, and how I break it up. Awesome. Last thing I wanted to ask you, Stan, was on sleep. We skimmed on that. We skimmed across that. And you 
released this interesting study, right, where it was, uh, I think, sleep-deprived individuals. And long story short, the weight that they lost, they were trying to lose weight, a lot of it was coming from muscle mass. Talk us through the importance of sleep and that particular study that you uh, posted. Yeah, that's very important. Obviously, the sleep quantity and quality, it seems that seven-plus hours is uh, is a good goal to shoot for. And the quality of that sleep will be determined on, uh, you know, your environment, sleep environment, and whether or not you suffer from apnea. Uh, if you do suffer from apnea, if you snore and wake up tired, and uh, it's a good idea to get a CPAP or get a sleep study and find out if, if that can benefit or lose weight. Or, you know, some people just from sheer neck girth from muscle aren't going to be able to uh, fix apnea with weight loss. Um, and then, you know, the sleep environment, I mentioned cool room, quiet room, dark room, all those are going to affect the quality of the sleep, obviously getting rid of your phones. I heard something on the internet the other day I thought was really good. I think it said 10 minutes of sun in the morning. 10 hours without caffeine before bed, people metabolize caffeine at different rates. And so uh, some people may have a, a, a decreased uh, sleep from drinking caffeine even late in the afternoon. Um, I think it said three hours, don't work out three hours up until three hours before bed. Um, don't do any work up until two hours before bed. That's a stress component. Uh, and then stay off of, you know, blue light devices, TVs and phones uh, one hour before bed. I would add in there about, uh, you know, it said that get your last meal about three hours before bed and uh, try and keep fluids to a minimum about three hours before bed. Uh, now, some people, they may, you know, have a metabolism such that they're a little hungry before bed. and Maybe they could throw down a, just a small uh, amount of berries with a little bit of fat-free Greek yogurt. Uh, interestingly enough, and it doesn't appear as though uh dairy in particular increases body temperature to the same degree as say meat would right before bed and that's one of the concerns is how hard is it for you to metabolize the meal that you ate right before bed does it raise your body temperature does that then um uh impair your uh, REM and stage four restorative sleep when you go to bed so other things that impact is alcohol you'll it, you might be able to get to sleep but the quality of sleep is going to um, significantly suffer the REM and stage four sleep as well as uh, sleep aids like Ambien uh, can uh, make it such that the quality of the sleep is, is vastly compromised. So all of those things are, are things to be considered. I think it's uh, to quote um, uh, Dr. Matthew Walker, who's on Joe Rogan, who's a sleep specialist. Uh, he said, it's the foundation upon which everything else sits. And so if somebody contacts me and says they're suffering from fatigue, I'm focused on sleep first. You know, and then then I can start looking at micronutrients like iron or I can look at their thyroid function or I can look at their training stimulus to see if they're not, you know, accumulating too much fatigue. But sleep's the the, the single most important one. Awesome. Stan, so much gold in this episode, my man. Really, really appreciate your time. Uh, where can the audience find you? Anything you want to kind of share? Yeah, my my website's staneffording.com. Uh, the Vertical Diet 3.0 ebook is uh, is on there as well as... Uh, uh, I have an meal prep company, The Vertical Diet. I ship uh, prep meals to, to people all over the country. And um, at Stan Efforting is the Instagram, and Stan Efforting is the YouTube. I have a lot of the Rhino's rants on YouTube uh, that are uh, pretty entertaining and fun to watch. Awesome. I just thought then I've got a bunch of clients in America, probably about 35 40% of my clients. So with the meal prep thing, I'll look into that actually, man. Absolutely. Thank you, brother. I appreciate it. Awesome. Thanks again, Stan.